Okay. Um, hey, my name is Kevin. Uh, if you guys have never met me, my name is Kevin. I work on staff uh, with Sumo at Mizzou. Um, I'm a couple. Yeah, go Tigers. Uh, I'm a couple of years graduate. Are there any college freshmen in here? Raise your hand. College freshmen. Nice. Okay. Decent amount. Awesome. Uh, it's been a couple. It's been a handful of years since I was a college freshman. Uh, but I remember really, really vividly my first week of college. Um, I'm from Chicago. Coming to Missouri, I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be great. I'm excited. Uh, but I remember my first week of school, there were some things that I had to learn, some things that were different. So I get to Mizzou, and uh, one of the first things I had to learn about was, was toasted ravioli. You guys have heard of toasted ravioli, T-Ravs, kind of like a St. Louis thing. Never heard of them in my life until I got to Mizzou. Uh, country fried steak, had never heard of it. Never heard of it in my life. I, I still don't know, is it country fried steak or chicken fried steak? I hear both. I have People are telling me it's either one. I, I, still, I still don't even know. I'm still learning. Uh, apparently the Chiefs are like a big deal or something. Uh, I don't know. Um, cowboy boots. Uh, I had no idea that people just like wore cowboy boots. I like went to my first like Spanish class and my Spanish partner is like, hola, he's got like cowboy boots on. I'm like, hey, people do this? This is, this is cool. I like that. I like that. My, uh, uh, my first class, this is something I had to learn. My first class, you guys ever had the professor that's like, hey, you can sit wherever you want, no assigned seats, do whatever you want, you know? And then you show up to class the next day and you're like, okay, cool. I sat here the first day. I can sit wherever I want the second day. And then you sit in this seat and someone gives you like a disgusting, dirty look because you like sat in their seat, you know? It's like professors lie. It's like they tell you that there's no assigned seats, but there's 100% assigned seats when you go to college, even if they say there's not. A lot of them are kind of dumb. It's like in a lot of ways, some of those were pretty dumb examples, but like it's a lot of ways when, when you go to college, whether you went far, whether you didn't go very far at all, you kind of learn that there's people that live differently than you. There's people that brush their teeth differently than you. There's people that listen to different music. There's people that eat different foods. They wear different clothes. I feel like my freshman year of college, I started to see that for the first time in my life because I met a bunch of different people from all over. It's like, oh, wow, there's, there's people that live differently than me. And sometimes it, it was kind of exhausting to be like, wow, I, I really am living against the grain in some ways. Um, and, and maybe we feel this in our lives, whether we listen to different kinds of music, we eat different kinds of foods, we wear different clothes, we even just say different words than other people. I wonder how often in our lives we feel like we're living differently or we feel like we're going against the grain of what's normal. I think especially, maybe not ultimately, but I think especially we probably feel this when it comes to pursuing our faith, right? Whether you're following Christ or not, you're at SMC, you're pursuing your faith to some degree, I wonder how many of us in this room feel that tension of, for me to pursue my faith, for me to investigate my faith, for me to live out my faith, that's something different than what everyone else around me on my campus is doing. So that's what we're here to talk about a little bit today is, you know, whether you're following Christ or not, just get a better idea of, one, the situation that we're in, get some clarity, and what is this situation that we're in, what is this life that God has called us to live the second part, as you'll see on your sheet, is the second one is the struggle. So there's a situation that we're in. The second one is there's a struggle for us. There's things that hold us back from being able to boldly and wholeheartedly live out the life that God has called us to live. And then the third one is the solution. So is there a solution? Is there a way that we actually can overcome the obstacles that we have, the struggles that we have, to actually live out this life that God has called us to live? So that's the direction that we're headed. Uh, we'll start first here with the situation. And so when it comes to the situation of going against the grain, one thing I love when I read the Bible every day is that when I get to read the Bible, the Bible gives me wisdom and it gives me a way to view the world. So I get to gain wisdom. I get to gain different ways to see the world the way that God sees it. 
One of my favorite passages that gives me so much clarity on what the world is like is Matthew 7, 13 and 14. So Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So to see the world the way God sees the world, according to Matthew 7, 13 and 14, we learn a couple of things. We learn there's two paths. There's a narrow gate, there's a broad gate, there's a wide road and a narrow road. Each of the paths leads somewhere. One leads to life, one leads to destruction. One road is popular, there's a lot of people on it. One road, not so popular. Ultimately, we know, hey, everyone, and Chad just mentioned this even in the main session, ultimately we know that everyone is going to spend an eternity somewhere. And the cool thing is that God lovingly gives us the choice to choose what path we're on. I kind of think about it like this. You have, you have a four-lane interstate, wide road, a bunch of people on it, go, all go in some direction. And then you have this country path with basically nobody on it. I've never been to K-State when school is going on, but this is what I imagine walking to class at K-State is like. <laughs> it's like, we can talk about the differences between the, the broad and the narrow roads all day long. I want to highlight one. I want to highlight one major difference between the broad and the narrow roads. Someone living on the broad road where they find value, what they, what they look to in order to, to build their identity is the approval of people or the world around them. So someone on the broad road looks for the approval of the world around them in order to find their value, while the, someone on the narrow road looks for the approval of God and God alone. They find their identity and their value in what God says of them and what God says of them alone. So we could, we could go to Galatians 1.10. It basically is the broad and narrow roads just described in a different way, right? It says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So it's a completely different book of the Bible, different author, but it's the same exact thing, right? It's like there's a broad road where someone's living to, to win the approval of human beings, the world around them. And there's a narrow road of someone living to please God, and so we're going to talk about each of these individually. We'll start with the broad road. The interesting thing about the broad road of living to win the approval of the world around us, the hard thing about that is that the world around us is constantly changing, right? The world around us is constantly changing what people like, what people value, what people admire, constantly changing, which makes it really hard to win the approval of people around us and keep that, right? So it's like, say I wanted to be the most popular person in the world. I get to 100,000 followers on my Instagram. That's great. But over time, there's going to be people around me who get to 200,000 and a million and you know, whatever. There's people who have millions of followers on Instagram. So it's like over time, no matter how popular I am on Instagram, it's like there's always going to be someone who's more popular than me. You could do, do strengths. Like I, I could bench 225 for 10, which I can't. But it's like eventually there's going to be someone who can bench 325 for 10. There's always going to be relative wealth. It's like I could graduate from college, make 100K a year, which I don't. But it's like, if I make 100K a year, there's always going to be someone who makes 500K a year. It's like, we'll never be able to match the world around us, no matter who we surround ourselves with. So to root ourselves, root our identity in something that's always changing is, is literally, the Bible describes it as like a chasing after the wind. Imagine the wind blowing downtown Kansas City as you're walking to lunch. Imagine literally running and trying to grab it. It's like, that's, that's ridiculous. You can never actually catch wind. Trying to, win, trying to win the approval of the world around us is the exact same thing. See, the narrow road is different. The narrow road seeks to please God and seeks to please God alone. The identity of someone on the narrow road is, complete, is built completely and solely on that. So what is it then that pleases God? 
What is it then that pleases God? Chad mentioned a lot of these actually in his talk just a second ago. I made a list of just some things. Just some things. People whose lives are fully surrendered to him. People making daily lordship decisions. People having a a distaste for sin, trying to turn away from sin. Daily pursuing God, seeking to know him in a deep and personal relationship. More and more getting in the word and prayer. Seeking to live a life where people are more and more obedient to him. All those things pleasing to God. All those things God loves, God approves of. But when we think about all those things, turning away from sin, pursuing God, living for him, trying to be obedient to him. When we think about each of our respective campuses, if you look out across all of the campuses, it's like, that's not the life that we see, right? That is, that is not at all the life that we see, maybe in our friends, maybe in your dorm or your fraternity, your athletic team, wherever we're at in college, that's not really the life that we see. But that's the incredible call for Jesus. That's Jesus' incredible call for us is to live differently, to make our one life, as we're talking about this week, to make our one life count for an eternity. And the incredible call of Jesus is a beautiful thing. Jesus desires to give us a life of significance. But in order for us to live a life of significance, we can't do what everybody else does. Living a life of significance, you'll see that on your sheet, I believe. Living a life of significance is not the same as doing what everyone else does. If you think about like just logically, that just makes sense, right? Like we can't just expect to just do what everyone else does around us and expect to get a different result. So the way that I like to think about this whole situation that we're in, it's kind of like signing day. You know, if you're an athlete, uh, you're, a senior, you're, you're a senior in high school, you have to sign with a college where you're gonna go play. So when I, was, when I was a senior in high school, my signing day was tough. I had a lot of offers, so to try to figure out where I was going to go was really tough. I took a picture. This is a table of all the D1 offers that I had when I think about going to college. I had none. I, yeah, I, no. <laughs> but it's like, but think about the principle. It's like you have, you have an athlete. Uh, this guy apparently just signed with Bama. I don't even know who this is. It's just found on Google Images. It's like you have an athlete who sits at a table. They have three, four, five offers from D1 schools, whatever. What they're choosing for the next four, three, however many years they're going to be there, they're choosing to give their whole life to that school. They're committing, they're trusting in a team, they're committing, they're trusting in a coach, in a university, an organization, in a school. They're committing wholeheartedly to give everything that they have for the next however many years for, to that university. It's like in the same way, for us, we have two hats. We have a broad hat and we have a narrow hat. And for us, the situation that we're all in, and Chad had just talked about this in the main session, the situation we're all in is we have to sign, right? We have to sign on the dotted line. Where are we going to, how are we going to live? What are we ultimately going to put our trust in? What are we ultimately going to live for? Are we ultimately going to live for the approval of God? Are we ultimately going to live for the approval of the world? It's crazy. God actually gives us the choice to choose what we want to value, to choose what we want to build our life and our identity on. So I think for all of us in this room, tell me if I'm wrong, but we would all on paper look at this contract and say, oh, I could have eternal life or I could have destruction, like what Matthew 7 was saying. Surely we would all choose eternal life, right? Surely there's none of us in this room that'd be like, oh yeah, I'd much rather have destruction in my life. That sounds great. It's like, surely we would all choose eternal life, right? So then why don't we? What's, what's the problem? What holds us back from being able to choose the life that God has called us to live? Or what, even if we have chosen that, what holds us back from being able to really live that out? So that's where we're going to go to the next. So that's the situation. It's signing day for us. But there is a struggle. There is a struggle. And we don't really have time to talk about everything. 
and, and really, realistically, we probably can't cover everything because for every single person in this room, all of our struggles are completely different, right? All of us come from different backgrounds, different experiences, different faith upbringings. We all have maybe different images of God or the world around us. So 100%, let's recognize all of our struggles are probably to some degree subjective. But I do think that there's a lot of things that we share. I do think that there's some common struggles that we share. I want to just hit on just one. I want to hit on one that I think really permeates through a lot of the aspects of our lives, and that's fear. One of our biggest struggles, I think, in being able to really live the life that God has called us to live on the narrow road is fear. The command, do not fear or do not be afraid, is used over 365 times in the Bible. Over 365 times, God says, do not fear, do not be afraid. Do you know why? Because we're afraid all the time. We fear a ton. Uh, We could fear spiders. Arachnophobia is the fear of spiders. Um, Me and my roommate found a massive spider in our apartments uh, earlier this semester. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. So maybe maybe you have a fear of spiders. If I leave this picture up longer, some of you guys aren't going to sleep tonight. Uh, So it could be arachnophobia. It could be acrophobia. Uh, acrophobia, fear of heights. Anybody in here have a fear of heights? Start to look at this picture, and it's like the knees kind of start to get a little shaky, get a little, get a little wobbly. Could be acrophobia. Uh, I learned about a new fear I'd never heard of before. It's called chromophobia, uh, which is the fear of colors. Anybody have a fear of colors? Hopefully not. If you're scared of orange, you're probably hating this breakout right now. Um, but that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the fear of spiders. I'm not talking about the fear of heights. I'm not talking about the fear of colors. Uh, I'm talking about a fear that is deeply rooted within our soul. It's the fear of losing ourselves. It's the, the fear of ourselves a phobia. Take that, write that down. It's going to be in the dictionary. I made it up. Fear of losing ourselves a phobia. We have a deep fear of losing what's ma- what matters most to us. And for a lot of us, what matters most to us is ourselves. Think about the call of Jesus to follow him. In Luke 9.23, says, Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to follow me must deny themselves, must pick up their cross daily and follow me. And the call to follow Jesus is a call to give up everything, to give up our complete selves in order to follow him. That means our reputation. That means our possessions. That means our image. That means our dreams, our ambitions. Don't we love all those things? Don't we love, don't we cherish all of those things? But it's crazy how much our pride, it's crazy how much our ego tells us and feeds us every single day that we should have and we deserve all those things for ourselves. What Jesus is saying is, hey, hey, give me those. Jesus said, give me your dreams, give me your desires, give me your ambitions, especially what we're talking about now. Give me your reputation, give me your image, give me how people think of you. And in return, I'm going to give you eternal life. It's crazy. When we look through the history of people, we see people struggling with with the exact same thing. If you've ever heard of Abraham, he's a pretty significant person in the Bible. Abraham uh, was given an incredible promise from God that he would be the father of many nations, that God would multiply his life to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Hebrews 11 is kind of like a, a heroes of the faith chapter of the Bible, and he's highlighted as like one of the main ones. Incredible person for us to look up to. Abraham struggles with this exact same problem that we struggle with. I don't have the verses on it because it, it's too long for us to go through a whole chapter. But Genesis 12, Abraham's going to Egypt. He's running away from a famine. And as he's on his way to Egypt, he looks at his wife and, she, and he's like, wow, my wife is beautiful. I love my wife. I would do anything to not lose her. So in order to protect himself, in order to protect how he's viewed, he says, hey, 
Sarah, I want you to tell Pharaoh that you're my sister. I want you to lie. I want you to tell him that you're my sister so that we, so that he won't kill me and just take you for himself. It's like Abraham, an incredible hero of the faith, struggles with preserving his own self, his own image, his own reputation, his own possessions. Not only does he does it, he does it once in Genesis 12, but then he does it again in Genesis 20. It's crazy. I think a clear example for us, I think we can really relate to is a guy named Pontius Pilate. So Pontius Pilate, he was a Roman governor at the time in Mark 15. Uh, and basically uh, what, why he's significant is he was given the ultimate decision of whether Jesus was to be crucified or not. So we have the situation in Mark 15. You have all these chief priests, these religious leaders. They bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate and they say, hey, Pontius Pilate, we want you to kill him. So this is a situation that says, Pontius Pilate says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate released, release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked him. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. They shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. It's like, what do we learn from Pontius Pilate here? Well, we see Pontius Pilate knows two things. Pontius Pilate knows, one, Jesus is innocent. He asks, hey, what, is, what has this guy done? And they literally don't even say anything. There's no charges that they bring against Jesus before Pontius Pilate. So he knows that. He also knows that the chief priests, the people who want Jesus killed, have a ton of self-interest in this. They have everything to gain by getting Jesus killed. So he knows those two things. So Pontius Pilate, he knows exactly what he should do. He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows the chief priests are greedy. They, they have selfish ambitions in this whole thing. But it's interesting. You see it at the end. It's like, Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate chooses to do what he knows he shouldn't do. Pilate, choosing to please the crowd, choosing to live for the approval of the world, choosing to preserve his image, choosing to preserve his reputation, sends Jesus to the cross to die. I wonder if there's any of us in here that can relate with this. Like, do we ever feel like Pontius Pilate? Have you ever done something in your life that you know you didn't want to do? But for some reason, to win the approval or to have people think that you were cool, to have people like you, you knew you didn't want to do it. You knew you didn't, want, you didn't want it, but you did it anyways. I wonder how much we recognize our desire to please people is riddled into and through our lives. Do we really know how much it plays into what we do, even on a daily basis? I was reading a book on this topic. It's called Embracing Obscurity. And so this is a quote from the author. It says, we're drunk, all right. We're intoxicated with a desire to be known, recognized, appreciated, and respected. We crave to be a somebody and do notable things, to achieve our dreams, and to gain the admiration of others. When I first read this, this was like a year and a half ago when I read that, I, I felt really exposed. I was like, wow, that's, that's 100% me. I love when people admire me. I love when people respect me. I love when I feel appreciated and people look up to me. I want all of those things. But to do that at the cost of winning the, people, or winning the approval of people around me leads to nothing good. I think of uh, when I was in fifth grade, uh, I played the saxophone. That's a picture of me. Uh, in fifth grade, I chose to play the saxophone. I loved it. Honestly, guys, I, I loved playing the saxophone. I played it for a year, and I, I honestly like, got kind of good. I got like, moved up. I got like, promoted. Uh, I really enjoyed playing the saxophone. Uh, but there was one problem. None of my boys were in the band. None of my boys played any instruments. None of my boys were in the band. 
I was doing it completely, according to myself, completely alone. So what I do, I gave it up. After a year, I loved it. I enjoyed it, every second of it. But because one of my friends did it, I chose to give it up. <laughs> it sounds dumb, but I'll always regret giving up the saxophone. I, w- I wish to this day that I still <laughs> was able to play the saxophone. That's just a, a silly example, but, the, but this is like riddled into and through my life, right? Uh, another example for me is Instagram. Uh, I never, I don't have an Instagram currently. I never once uh, got an Instagram, uh, which sounds like, okay, that's weird. Um, everyone has an Instagram. The reason I would have told you in high school, the reason why I did, never got an Instagram when it got popular is at the time I was like, oh, well, I don't take pictures. So why would I have a social media that you only post pictures? That's like dumb. That's probably what I told, would have told you. But I think deep down, I was scared to get an Instagram because I was scared that whatever I would have posted, people wouldn't like. Whatever image of myself I was going to put on Instagram, I was terrified that people wouldn't like it, wouldn't admire it. Same thing with Snapchat stories. And I never posted a single story on Snapchat because I was terrified of how people would view me just from a picture or a video that I posted. Would people like me? Would people admire me? Would people want to be like me, want to be my friend, depending on what I posted? I feel this struggle of my pride and ego wanting to preserve myself. I feel this so much in my life. If we really consider it, it's like living for the approval of the world leads us to nowhere but pain. It leads us to nowhere but pain. It leaves us empty over and over again. And, and to be honest, I think it makes us really fragile. I think it makes us really, really fragile people constantly tossed and turned by the desires and the values of the world around us. I kind of like to think about it as if our, our world was a gigantic library. So imagine your, this, this world is a gigantic library and every book on that shelf is someone's life. So from cover to cover, you have a book on that shelf, and from cover to cover, that's your whole life. It's everything you've thought, it's everything you've said, it's everything you've done, and you have a front and a back cover. Is there there anyone in this room that has never heard the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover? Truly, I'm guessing that we have all heard that phrase at some point in our life. I think it's interesting, I think it's probably pretty good advice, because we're indoctrinated into a world that does nothing but judges people's books by their covers, right? We do nothing, and the world around us does nothing but judges the book of our life by its cover. And because of that, what we try to do is we try to have the best cover as possible. We try to have the best title, the nicest prints, the smoothest fonts, the New York Times bestseller, over a million copies sold. We try to build the cover of our lives to be the best as it, po- as it possibly can be so that someone can walk past that shelf and see us, see our cover, and think, oh, I like that. I want to I read that. I want to look into that. We care only about the cover of our book, and we never really care about what's inside of it. So think for a second. If there was literally a biography written about your life, what would you want the title of that biography to be? What, what would you want the most important thing about your life to be, and what would you put on the cover of your book I went online. I found some interesting biography names. Uh, Joe Namath, who was a famous quarterback, uh, the title of his biography is I Can't Wait Until Tomorrow. And then probably most of you can't see underneath it. It says, because I get better looking every day. I was like, oh, wow, that's not me. That sounds good. Uh, Alan Alda said, never have your dog stuffed. And then other things that I've learned was the, t- was the title of his life. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm curious what other things he's learned besides don't stuff your dog. I had one uh, that I thought of, but Sarah Silverman stole it, stole it from me. It's just the bedwetter. It is the bedwetter. If, maybe if that was you, if you were thinking that would be a good title for the book of your life, you should probably change it because she already stole it. 
But I wonder how much of us really, really care, how much we really, really care about the cover. So consider for yourself these three questions. When you meet someone for the first time, what do you want them to know about you? What are, what are the things that you're dying to tell them about you in order to impress them, to win their respect, to win their, win their approval? On a scale of 1 to 10, how important is, you that, is it to you that others admire you for what you've done in your life? And then the third one is, how do you define success? What would it look like for you to make it? What would it look like for you to make it? I think, realistically, if we really, really considered these questions accurately and honestly, we'd probably see a lot of areas in our life where our pride and our ego are just riddling and making an impact on our daily decisions. So on top of that, now I want you to consider how much then is your desire to win the approval of people around you holding you back from living the life that God has called you to live. So whether you're following Christ or not, how much is your desire to win the approval of the world around you holding, holding you back from living the life that God desires for you to live? I can tell you from firsthand experience, it's tough to read your Bible and obey it when no one else does. It's tough to turn from sin in your life when no one else around you is. It, pro- it might have been even hard for you to come to SMC and tell someone, hey, after, after New Year's Eve, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Kansas City and I'm going to grow my faith. <laughs> I would bet that there's people here at SMC that lied about what they were doing here in Kansas City just to protect their image and their reputation or what someone might think of them. I think we all want to be this person who doesn't care about what, any, what other people think about them, who's set free from the shackles of constantly wondering, hey, if I do this, what's this person going to think? If I act like this, what's this person going to feel? If I say this or if I do this, how are these people around me going to react? I, I wonder if we're so used to doing this that we don't even think about it. It's just part of our subconscious. It's just a part of our nature. How much of that does that impact our life, and how much of that is, is, does it make it a struggle for us to live the life that God has called us to live. So there's two roads. There's a situation and there's a broad and a narrow road. I think we would all say that the life on the narrow road sounds good, but the struggle for us is that we care so far too much about what people around us think. We care and we value and we base our identity in what everyone else around us thinks. So what then is there a solution? What then is the solution? How do we actually overcome our desire to please people and build into our life a desire to live a life that pleases God and pleases God alone? If the core of our problem is kind of rooted in our identity and where we place our value, then the core of the solution also should be rooted in our identity and what we value, right? So I think people live out of what they believe is true, right? People live out of what they believe is true. Uh, has anyone in this room, raise your hand, I'm, I'm kind of curious, anyone in this room ever been hypnotized? Okay, one, couple, okay, there's a couple hands. Okay, yeah, you don't have to be ashamed about it, that's fine. Anyone here about hypnotized? Anyone who's brave enough to come up here and sit down and let me hypnotize them? I need one brave volunteer. No, I'm just kidding, you I'm not going to hypnotize you. I have no idea how to hypnotize one. I don't even know if I believe in hypnotism, it's kind of crazy. I was just curious to see if, anyone, if there was anyone brave enough. Um, so I have no idea how I feel about hypnotism, but I know there's videos on YouTube about it. So I found a video on YouTube. This is a dude, he's a hypnotist, he goes to this college, brings a bunch of college students up on stage, puts them to sleep, hypnotizes them. While they're asleep, he walks, walks to every single one of them and tells them, hey, you are a professional bodybuilder. 
You are a professional bodybuilder, wakes them up, and they stand up and literally start acting like bodybuilders. So they like walk over to each other, they start like flexing, like they're like flexing in front of the crowd. Like these people are like literally acting like they're professional bodybuilders. While they're on stage, he says, hey, you're a professional bodybuilder, but there's a catch. And the catch is that that metal chair right there is the heaviest chair in the world, and you can't pick it up. So he tells them, you're a professional bodybuilder, and that chair is the heaviest chair in the world, but you can't pick it up. So then one by one, he goes down the line and has each of these hypnotized people try to pick up the chair. We don't have time to watch the whole thing. See this dude in the black in the middle who's flexing his triceps? He's the biggest dude on stage, so I picked a clip of him trying to pick up the, vi- pick up the chair, and we'll see what happens. Uh, hopefully the sound isn't too crazy. <laughs> All right, so here's this dude. Oh. <laughs> Nothing. That's ridiculous, right? It's like, this is a pretty big dude, and this is the most simple, average, boring chair that anyone, any single one of us in this room could pick up, right? If you go on later on, later on in, the, in the video, he has every single person on stage try to grab this chair and all pick it up together, and the chair, like, barely lifts off the ground. Like, barely. These people are convinced that they're professional, professional bodybuilders, but at the same time, they're convinced that they can't pick up that chair, and so it leads in to what they do and how they act. Right? It's like what we believe is true impacts what we do. What we believe is true impacts what we do. There's probably not many of us in here who think that we're professional bodybuilders. But what do we believe is true of us? And even more importantly, where do we get that opinion from? Where do we get the opinion of what is true of us from? Sitting on the broad path, if we try to get the opinion of what is true of us from the world around us, what we're going to hear is you're not good enough. What we're going to hear is you're not pretty enough. What we're going to hear is you're not smart enough. You're not wealthy enough. You're not big enough, etc., etc. You know, we could go down the line. That's what we're constantly going to hear is true of us if the only thing that we do is live for the approval of the world around us. But what about the life on the narrow road? What about the person who seeks to win the approval of God? What's true of them? What does God say is true of us if we choose to make that decision to surrender our lives to him and wholeheartedly follow him? I wish I had time. Maybe at some point in my life I'm going to do this. But I bet if you read from cover to cover the entire Bible and found every single promise from God that is true of someone who's following him, I bet you would find some unbelievably incredible promises. I picked a couple of my favorite ones that have been impactful for me. John 1.12 is, is an example of one of those promises. It says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. What's the promise in this verse? Is that if, if we believe in Jesus, if we have trusted our lives in him, then what, was, what is true of us is that we are children of God. We are literally a child of God. In the same way that a, God, that a father loves, accepts, welcomes, adores their kids, and the, same, the exact same things are true of God with us when we trust him. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people. This is written to people who are following God. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So what's true? What's, what, is, what is true of someone who follows God in this verse? They're a, they're a chosen people by God. A royal priesthood, basically just meaning that they, that they were created for a service and for a job. 
a holy nation, God's special possession. God's special, the God of the universe, someone who's following him, they are God's special possession. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God, whom, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. In Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. What's true of 2 Corinthians 5.21 is that if we have trusted Jesus with our lives, then God doesn't look at us and see all of our sin and all of our imperfections. He looks at us and he sees Jesus' perfection. Jesus' righteousness and his perfection, we're cloaked in that when we choose to trust God and to follow him. So what I want to ask you guys today is, is what do you believe is true of you? What do you believe is true of you? Because if, if we believe that these things are true of us, if we believe that we have the righteousness of Jesus, if we believe that we are a chosen people, if we believe that we are God's special possession or a child of God, how is that going to change then the way that you live? If you believe you're a child of God, you believe you're a chosen people and God's special possession, how then is that going to change the way that you live? Would you then be set free from the opinions of people in the world around you? 100%. Would you experience the freedom of living like a child of God? 100%. Would you be content in who you are and how God made you? 100%. Would you have clarity in who you are, what you're pursuing? Would you be a little bit more joyful? Would you be able to resist the temptations to do the things that aren't in God's will for your life? Chad just talks about it. What's, what's your favorite sin? Would you be able to resist and turn away from your favorite sin if you truly believe that you are a child of God and you are not your sin anymore? And there is unbelievable power in recognizing what is actually true of us and believing what is actually true of us. And so we could look at drinking, hooking up, doing drugs, laziness, lack of, lack of passion, zeal, any other sin that we could see commonly on each of our campuses. We could look at all of those and say, hey, that's not me. I'm a child of God. I'm God's special possession. I'm a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I have Jesus' righteousness. I have the power now to say no to those things and to live exactly the life that God has called me to live. And we choose to trust God the acceptance that we'll get from him, the praise that we'll receive from him is far greater than anything in the world that we could ever, ever get. Not only, does, not only is that true, but then when we do, when we live out of that, we get to experience all of the eternal life that Jesus wants us to experience. We get to experience intimacy with God. We get to experience becoming like Jesus. We get to be experience being used by God to impact the people around us. Like I'm, I made one simple decision in college, one simple decision that, that I wasn't going to drink. That was, a, that was a decision I personally made for myself. I chose, hey, while I'm in college, I don't want to drink. That was against the grain, right? Like there's a lot of people in college that drink, you know? So for, to make a simple decision of, hey, this one thing that everybody else does, I'm not going to do and I'm going to live differently. I still went to the bars. I still hung out with my friends all the time, had a great time with my friends. But that one simple decision of choosing to live against the grain opened up infinitely more possibilities to have the best conversations that I've ever had in my life. The, the most real, the most deep conversations that I've ever had with my friends ever in my life 
were as simply just in the middle of a bar with crazy loud music, dancing, everything going on, and someone said, hey, why don't you drink? And all of a sudden, boom, now we're in this incredible conversation about God and about life. We'll never fully know how God could use us if we don't make this decision to choose to live against the grain. And recognizing who you are in Christ, who you could be in Christ, is the key to unlocking all your true potential and the key to being able to live and experience the eternal life that God desires to give us. So that is it. So, so we have a situation of, of what road are we going to live on. We have a struggle of it's hard for me to live on this road or it's hard for me to choose to live on this road because we care so much about what people will think of us. And the solution is, is to see ourselves how God sees us, to really believe that God does think those things of us. That changes everything about the way that we live and the power that we get to live through that. Guys, at the end of the day, there's, you know, there's two paths. There's, there's K-State and there's everybody else. That's, that's what we got. You know, there's, a broad, there's a broad road. There's a narrow road. I think anyone who does anything significant in their life, if we looked at the history of the world, anyone who did anything significant, whether it was you know, something in regards to faith or not, anyone who did anything significant in their life at some point had to go against the grain. At some point, they had to make a decision. They had to choose to do something that probably wasn't really popular. I think if, if any of us desire to be a leader in our lives, there's just no way that we can be a leader and still live like a follower. You know, we're, we're deceived into thinking that the approval of the world is so important to us, when in reality, it's just not. I kind of think about it like a map. You guys probably didn't come to SMC super excited to learn about maps, uh, but maybe this will be helpful. Um, so here's a map of the world. Um, the, it, let's say, we'll start with this. If I was going to ask you guys... What are the biggest three countries on this map? What would you tell me? Get, shout out some answers. Russia. Russia. Okay, this one, this is Russia, in case you didn't know. This is Russia. Uh, what other ones? Greenland. Greenland. Okay, Greenland. That's Greenland, in case you didn't know. We're learning here. Canada. Canada. Okay, well, for, for all intents and purposes, let's say, let's say Russia right here, Greenland right here, Canada right here. According to this map, probably the three biggest countries in the world. Especially, I mean, you look at Russia and you look at Greenland, it's like Greenland is liter- it looks like its own continent, right? Like it is bigger than Africa. But the interesting thing is maps deceive us. So the problem with maps is we're taking a 3D spherical object. The world is a, is a sphere. It's not flat. That's, there's a breakout on that later probably. <laughs> the, wor- the world's a sphere. So the, the problem that we have is to take a sphere and make it flat distorts things on the sphere. So there's countries on here that are distorted and aren't actually their real size. Here's a gif of the countries being shrunken down to their real size according to what they actually are. This is a picture. So the light blue picture is what it shows on a map. The dark blue picture is the size of the country in reality. It's like you look at – oh, one too far. You look at Greenland. It's like Greenland once went from an entire continent – to now, I looked it up, if you took the surface area of Greenland, you could fit 14 Greenlands in the continent of Africa. So what once was bigger than a continent, now you could fit 14 of those inside of Africa. Canada, way smaller. Even the U.S., Alaska, way smaller than what we actually think they are in a map. Where I'm going with this is I wonder if we do the same thing with people's opinions of us. I wonder if, you know, if Russia is kind of like our friends. Russia is kind of like our friends. We care a ton about what they think of us. Not that you shouldn't care about your friends, but it's like in reality, from, the, from God's perspective, do, do the opinions of your friend really matter that much? Like, 
Canada, Canada is like your ex-girlfriend. You know, it's like, okay, maybe, maybe you feel like Canada is important, but guys, Canada is probably not that important. Canada is probably not that important. Hopefully no one clips that and sends that out. Uh, Green, Greenland, Greenland's not a continent, guys. Greenland is not a continent. It's just a small little country. Now, which, what are those for us? What's Russia for you? What's Canada for you? What's Greenland for you? And why do you care so much about those people's opinions? Because there's two problems with this. One, we overinflate countries that to think that they're too big. We overinflate people's opinions of us that shouldn't really matter. But at the same time, I also think that we underinflate the one opinion of us that should matter. We underinflate, we undersize God's opinion of us, the creator of the universe, the ruler of the world. I think a lot of us can underinflate God's opinion of us. And that then changes the way that we live. So to finish it off, what would it look like for you then to under to deflate the opinions of the world around you? What would it look like for you to inflate the opinion of God? I'm confident that that would give us power to either live on the narrow road to live the life that God has called us to live or power to make that decision to, to once and for all choose to do that. So let's choose to do that as we continue to go through SMC. Let's can continue to consider the opinions of people and the opinions of God around us. Guys, I'm excited to see what God is going to do the rest of the day, the rest of this week. Uh, and so I think as we leave here, we're going to launch into a lunch break. So go ahead, launch, meet up with your friends. Uh, we'll see you guys at lunch, and then we'll see you uh, here the rest of this week at SMC.